I'm Stephen Henderson. In this episode of Created Equal, I talk with writing, literature, and publishing professor at Emerson College, Gerald Walker. He's also the author of a new collection of personal essays called How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, which is a finalist for a National Book Award. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. You dedicate this book to your mentor, James Allen McPherson, who was your teacher at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Talk about some of the big lessons you learned from him and what prompted you to dedicate this book to him. Well, I'll answer that um, at the at the end. I dedicated it to him because without him, there would not be this book or the two prior ones I wrote. Um, or maybe that if I wanted to be slightly more generous to myself, there would be other books, but they would be bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> James McPherson uh, made me rethink my entire approach to writing about black life. And it came about because I, I was accepted to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and I um, took a workshop with James McPherson. And for the first three weeks of the course, he was he's a pretty quiet, um, mild-mannered guy. And he simply let the students do all the talking, except for when it came time to discuss my first piece. I had submitted a story that was just based on my experiences growing up on the south side of Chicago. And McPherson prefaced the workshop by saying, a lot of gangster rappers are out there um, using these stereotypes, which are false um, because they're trying to entice white writers to uh, like their work. But these gangster rappers are living lifestyles that are completely different from what they depict in their, in their lyrics. Mm. And he accused me of doing the same thing. And I, I uh, got pretty upset about it. I went to see him the next day. And I explained that I am not trading in stereotypes. This is, this is my life. And uh, I went through the characters one by one. And I explained uh, that they were true. And I demanded an apology from him. Wow. And he then blew his top because he was a pretty well-respected uh, writer. He was the first black writer to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Mm -hmm. So he stormed out of the office and he came back after he calmed down a bit. And I told him, look, I, you know, I'm doing my best as a writer. Maybe I mishandled the material. And he gave me this advice, which um, made me rethink my entire approach to writing. He told me stereotypes are valuable, but only if you use them to your advantage, that you use them to entice readers into what appears to be familiar territory. But once they're in that territory, you have to move them beyond the stereotype and show them what's real. And I asked him what's real. And he said, you, mm. I didn't understand it. I had to think about it for a while. But what he was saying is I, the stereotypes that I had adopted as the core of my writing philosophy was that blacks are, are victims of white oppression, solely victims, not uh, in part, but only victims. And that we uh, cannot overcome the obstacles that we face. And um, he wanted me to recognize that people like myself and through the history of African-Americans in this country, we have never been solely victims of anything. We've always been a people who have struggled and fought and resisted and figured out survival strategies to do well in this country. And I was an example of it. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's an incredible exchange to have with someone, someone of that caliber. I mean, somebody whose work and whose life 
is is such a model for not just African American aspiring writers, but but anybody who would who would think uh, about about being a writer. Uh, were you intimidated at all with with this interaction with somebody who? who was, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, so famous and, and so influential. Well, you, you're kind of used the word incredible. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was more accurately probably foolish. <laughs> I, I have no business speaking to him in that manner. Uh, in, in my defense, though, I was so shaken by his critique of me. If I had simply had a workshop and he pointed out the flaws in my prose, that would have been one thing. But for him to accuse me of doing what I believe to be probably one of the greatest sins a writer could do, which is to trade in stereotypes and to make things up and to present a self that is inauthentic to who the writer truly is. I simply couldn't accept that. And so, um, and also in my defense, I didn't sleep that night because I was so upset. Mm -hmm. So I went into his office pretty wired and a little bit out of control. And to his generosity, and another reason why he deserves this dedication and probably a hundred others from, from former students, he could have thrown me out of his office. Who does this guy think he is? This you know, 20-something-year-old guy who's never done anything uh, comes into my office and demands an apology. Uh, he, he would have been completely within his rights to say, leave my office and never speak to me again. And that would have been that. But instead, he decided to take me under his wing and to see if he could teach me. And he worked with me one-on-one -on -one for three years and served ultimately as my dissertation uh, supervisor when I completed a PhD. So he, he was a remarkable person, and I dedicate this book uh, to him and also my, my worldview. Mm. So the title of the book, How to Make a Slave, which is also the title of the very first essay in the book, is a reference to a famous quote by Frederick Douglass. Uh, can you tell listeners about it for those who, who might not be familiar with that quote or what, uh, what Douglass was getting at when he said it? Um, the essay starts with me uh, doing a project. I'm 10 years old, and I'm doing a project for my um, elementary class in which we have to present on a famous figure in African-American history, and I have Frederick Douglass as my, um, my character. And I, I, uh, I tell the class that uh, he's my hero and he's a fantastic person, but that's not true because at, at age 10, I'm really starting to learn the history of African-Americans in the United States, and it's pretty bleak. And to find yourself a part of this tradition of, of oppression and um, murder and, and uh, just, you know, outright um, bad treatment, uh, I was feeling kind of, kind of down on Douglas and all things African-American. But there's one scene in his autobiography where Douglas is pretty much fed up with his treatment of his slave master. And he says, right before nearly beating the man to death, you have seen how a man was made a slave. Now you shall see how a slave was made a man. And uh, it's a remarkable sentence because it, it later in my life, I see that that sentence can also mean in a more broader context that you, if you are a slave to race in this country, um, then you cannot be uh, a man in a broad sense of the term, that you, you will never be a master of yourself if you allow the subject of race to dominate your every thought, your every move, and to create the kinds of paranoia that makes it impossible for you to see your fellow citizens as, in fact, fellow citizens. Hmm. Uh, th that idea of 
duality that I think is behind what Douglas is talking about there and what you're writing about in in this collection of essays is, to me, just such an integral part of being African-American in, in this country, the idea of, uh, of what was done to us for, for centuries and continues in, in many ways uh, to happen in, in different iterations versus what we have decided to do f- for ourselves and to make of ourselves is, is this kind of central tension of the narrative of, of being black in this country. That's true, and I think it would do um, everyone well on both sides of the racial equation um, to not focus solely on what was done to African-Americans, but as you said, what African-Americans did in response to what was being done. That what we're talking about here is um, a group of people who have managed to endure the brutalization of slavery and its aftermath, and if you can endure that and make it through it, then you by necessity are more than the sum of that brutalization. And so African-Americans have uh, for centuries shown resilience and toughness and the ability to improvise in negative situations to try to find a way to not only survive them, but often to excel. So you grew up on the south side of Chicago and parts of your childhood were pretty rough. And that seems to, of course, have had a pretty profound impact on your outlook and on your work. Tell us a little bit about what your days were like as a child and and how that has shaped your your worldview as an adult. Um, sure. It's, a, it's kind of a, um, a, a tale of two different lives. When I was six years old, I think my parents moved to a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago that was a white middle-class neighborhood. We were the second black family in the community. And that, for many people living there, uh, was two black families too many. And so uh, they started moving out at a pretty rapid clip, so that by the time I was 14 years old, the neighborhood had gone from 99.9% white to 100% black. And if the whites who fled um, simply fled, that might have been, you know, okay, an okay outcome. Okay, so now we have a black middle-class neighborhood. But the, the problem is the whites who fled often were the business owners in the community. And so a lot of the businesses left, the economic base of the community collapsed. And so the neighborhood went from being um, a, you know, a middle class, the kind of neighborhood that people aspire to move to, to being a complete ghetto uh, full of all the things that are um, common in these kinds of communities, drugs, gangs, alcohol, all of that stuff. And so I was 14 coming of age, right when these, this environment changed. And I found myself sort of swept up into it. And uh, the effect of that as you grow older, as you become an adult, what did it do to you? Well, um, one of the things um, it did when I went through a pretty dark period from the age I started getting involved in petty crimes and drugs and alcohol, um, mostly at the urging of one of my older brothers, And um, by the time I was 16, I dropped out of uh, high school and I was uh, just a complete wreck until my early 20s when I had a friend of mine. um, I was 20 years old and I was uh, 
pretty addicted to cocaine at that point. Mm. Or, or I'll say uh, I liked it a whole lot. I don't want <laughs> to compare myself to people who uh, have, have a much more difficult time than I had with it. I simply wanted it at every opportunity. Uh, but I wasn't some guy, you know, in the alley shaking, you know, on his hands and knees. But I, but I wanted it. And so I was 20 years old and I went to um, a friend of mine who was a, a drug dealer contacted me to say that he... Uh, was selling um, Coke, and if I wanted some on credit, I could go and get it. And so I said, sure, I'll be there in 15 minutes. I went to his place of business, went into an alley to get to his third floor apartment, and some guy stepped out of the shadows and put a gun to my head and said, you know, give me your money. And I said, I don't have any money. I'm here to get drugs on credit. And he searched my pockets, found that it was true, and told me to go upstairs and get my drugs. And I did. I saw my friend. I told him what happened. We laughed about it because these things were kind of common. And I went back downstairs and um, the guy wasn't there waiting for me, which was great. And I went and I got high. And 30 minutes later, my um, brother contacted me to say that my friend from whom I bought the drugs had been murdered at the very spot where I had been robbed, mm. making it pretty likely that the guy who put the gun to my head actually put it to my friends and pulled the trigger six times. And so uh, that was the moment for me to take stock of my life. I, I threw the drugs away that I had not consumed and I never got high again. Um, so, and I ultimately got out of that uh, environment. But to answer your question, that environment doesn't leave you. It stays with you. And I chronicled that in my first book, Street Shadows. And the title alludes to the fact that those streets are the shadows that still plague me. And I, despite the fact that I have by what uh, any standard would be considered a successful um, career, as a, as a writer and as a professor, I still can't get beyond, maybe it's simply called survivor's guilt, but I always still feel that what happened to my friend uh, in that dark alley is something that I still have not yet escaped. And so it lingers, the whole effect of that environment still lingers with me. And I almost expect at any moment for someone to come from some shadow and say, your time is up. Wow, wow. And, and as a writer, of course, I mean, you know, I always say there's this this kind of double-edged sword to, to to that life, which is sort of defined by the pain and the struggle that most writers and most people who who spend their life trying to make words into you know ideas and power um, that that you have this this thing that this awful part of you that you lived through, that you survived, and that you now leverage in order to tell the stories that you want, in order to make the arguments that you want. But, but uh, no matter how successful you are as a writer, I, I, I think the pain of what you experience, the, the fear of what you experience never leaves you. And I, I, I hear... I guess I hear that in, in your recounting of, of what that was like for you. It's true. And I, I tell my students this often um, because I teach memoir, I teach personal essay. And a lot of my students uh, gravitate to some pretty awful experiences. I mean, this is their material and this is what they um, want to document. And I sometimes wonder uh, what people do with all of this negativity from their lives and often from their, their youth. What do they do with it if they're not an artist? And what do they do with it if they're not a writer? Because we have the opportunity to try to make sense of it and to try to understand it and maybe even to try to heal from it as we practice our craft. 
I mean, there's an old saying that art is the child of pain. And so we at least have the benefit of creating art out of it. And when my students have these awful, awful experiences, um, they can at least take some solace in the fact uh, that they, they can heal from it through the process of creation. And so I, I, I take those experiences from my youth and I have tried to uh, convert it to something that's useful not only to uh, myself, but to readers and even people who may have had similar experiences. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll have more of my conversation with professor and author Gerald Walker. I'm Ian Delisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. So one of the essays in your book is dedicated to former President Obama's inauguration and how it inspired a conversation with your two sons about race. Uh, Talk about that moment and how you were trying to contextualize it for your boys. Um, Absolutely. One of the things that I I think is interesting uh, lately, especially with the uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, a lot of white people were sort of rushing out trying to figure out what they can read and study so that they can have some pretty hard conversations with their family and their kids about race. Um, but the thing that maybe a lot of people don't quite understand is that blacks aren't born knowing how to have these conversations. Either. <laughs> right. so we, don't, we don't know what to do with con- the concept of uh, uh, racial oppression in this country when we have kids. And so it's always been uh, a difficult thing for me to try to figure out what to uh, say to my children. And I go back to me being a 10-year-old learning about slavery and Frederick Douglass and all of these things and the weight it kind of put on me. And if you're a parent of, uh, of black kids uh, and you know that from the moment they're born, uh, they are raceless. They're simply adorable little beings and they're happy and they're silly. But you also know that at some point that's going to change. They're going to start being African-Americans. And you have to decide as a parent uh, how to prepare them for it and how to have that not be a negative. That there are some obstacles and some challenges, but being black is not a sentence for being miserable or oppressed. But I, but I also know that it is gonna be a moment of awakening for a child, much the way that you might tell a kid, guess what, sorry, there's no Santa Claus. You wanna delay that for as long as possible and let their innocence um, sort of flourish. Mm. And so when uh, Obama was elected, I knew that my kids who were six and eight at the time were going to have discussions at school about what this election meant. And race was going to become a a matter of primary significance in their lives. And I wanted to prep them for it, but I didn't know how to have that conversation. I didn't want to do, to go back to my youth, what I saw a lot of adults do with their children, which was to tell them at a very early stage that being black means white oppression. I didn't want to give that to my kids and have them think of themselves as the object of, of oppression. But I, but I also wanted to, um, to let them know that those things are out there. So it's a matter, it's a loss of innocence for both my children uh, and for me that the um, election of Barack Obama brought about. So, so I remember that same moment and, and my children were much younger, 
maybe than yours were at that at that point and and not really able to fully absorb the moment but i i do remember thinking that for them because they were so young and as they would get older and come to think about the the, the very concept of president or or nation or race that their first reference to to the idea of a president would be an African American man and that it would it would fundamentally change their perception of themselves and this country in a way that isn't possible for people who are our age. In other words, that that this is this moment that resets the baseline for understanding for an entire generation of these things. And and I, I absolutely agree with you about this idea of of that moment when there's the lost innocence that your kids have when they when they can no longer just exist in the world and have to contend with the ideas of race and the history of race. But I also I also felt really good about that. I felt really good about that moment uh, for them because it it just is going to frame things so differently. And 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 as they get older, uh, all of the experiences that they have will be influenced by that that reset. I completely agree with that. It was a overwhelmingly uh, positive experience for my family and my wife and I were extremely grateful that our children would be coming of age, racially speaking, with the black president. So we were we were thrilled about that. But to fully understand the significance of Barack Obama, you have to go back to Frederick Douglass and his um, peers who uh, were enslaved. So they were gonna get the good and the bad, but I wanted to have the conversation um, about the bad so that they could fully appreciate the good. You can't appreciate Barack Obama until you, unless you talk about what came before him. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely positive. But when I finished the discussion and I mentioned slavery and how that made this moment in time so phenomenal, I told my children that to go from slavery to the presidency meant that African-Americans are remarkable people capable of achieving anything that that was the lesson of the moment that I wanted them to take, and they did take it. And they, um, the, the, their, their lives and their behavior and their character completely reflect the, the positive outcome of Barack Obama's presidency. Mm. Does it ever sort of lash back at you? Does it ever come back in a negative way, the fact that, that you are so open about about the things that you've experienced? Um, it, it, it kind of, in a way. Um, but when I became an academic, and when most people who are academics come from a certain class of society, so that you're not going to find many academics who were born in a housing project and raised on the south side of Chicago and dropped out of school at 16. So you run across people who have had pretty um, cushy, privileged lives and who have attended attended the best schools and uh, lived in the best society. And then they read your stories and there is a bit of snobbery, snobbery involved in that. And sometimes there's um, a little a resistance to having you be in this different uh, class of company. 
but you can't, you just can't be concerned with that. You just have to uh, recognize that you deserve to be in the place where you are. And I, I am here. This is my past. I'm no longer ashamed of it. In fact, I'm proud of these experiences because they've made me who I am. And also, as I mentioned to my kids often, those experiences have given me strength. They've given me um, character. They've given me uh, pride. These are all the qualities that have consistently been present with African-Americans for 400 years. Mm -hmm. I want to talk with you a little about humor and light moments. Uh, you use that to real effect uh, in the book. Uh, talk about the, the role of humor and levity in growing up somewhere that's thought of as dangerous and in, in again, leveraging that history uh, to, to your own advantage as an adult. Um, I wanted to make sure I, there was a blend of, um, of uh, uh, happiness and uh, tragedy, of tragedy and comedy, because mm -hmm. lives uh, have both. And, I, and I, one of the things in um, one of the essays I call Heritage Room, it's about portraits of African-Americans who, who were hung in uh, a conference room at one of my prior um, institutions uh, of higher learning. And all of the pictures were of African-Americans who were scowling and had these frowns on their faces, people you would know, um, like Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and all of these icons of, of black um, culture. And they're all frowning. And that just seems so opposite to what I know about my experience as an African-American. Sure, bad things happen. Sure, we have obstacles. Sure, we deal with racism. But that is such a small fraction of who we are as people. And when I think back on my childhood on the south side of Chicago, when I have the dark experiences that happen, those occur to me. But I, I picture myself laughing with my friends. And I picture myself going to basketball court and playing games and teasing each other. And uh, I, I think that the African-American experience uh, is one that is just completely full of opportunities for humor and irony and laughter and fun. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that struggle to not just express humor or joy, but have control over it. Uh, the, way, the way that you get to express it, where you get to express it is is again uh, a, a very old and consistent tension uh, inside African American life in this country. I mean, it's just not—it's not something that most people think of when they think of the African American experience. They don't, but they will when they read this book because it's hysterical. <laughs> That's right. There, there are some dark moments, but there there are some pretty funny things in it, and I. I try to I try to make sure that humor um, is a central role in, in most of these stories. So um, because it helps, it helps, especially when talking about something as heavy as race, uh, it helps to have a little sweetener uh, to it to help it go down a little bit. Mm. Uh, I, I want to make sure I, I get you to talk a little about this moment in racial dialogue and debate and argument in in this country. This has been an extraordinary year and the summer of uh, the BLM protests and, and the movement that has now grown out of it, I think really changed the balance of, uh, of the discussion for almost everybody uh, who, who's engaged with it. Um, are, we, are we in a different space 
now than we were before uh, George Floyd was was murdered by the police and and this movement uh, cropped up. Are we closer to the kinds of equality that uh, that African Americans have been trying to achieve, you know, as you point out, for, for nearly 400 years on this continent? I think that there's been steady progress in racial equality in this country. And I think that the last few years have been kind of a setback, um, but the movement is always forward. And even after a couple of uh, steps back, you, you'll take one or two back, but then you'll go forward five or six. And I'm, I'm anticipating that we're due for five or six steps forward right now. Uh, but I think there's always been steady progress. And I think uh, that we will reach a point where race in this country is no longer the abiding concern of the citizens. And I, and I, I have to believe that. I believe that uh, racial equality is possible. Uh, and I believe that a post-racial society is possible. Now, uh, that may sound absolutely absurd to a lot of people, but I think I think I owe it to my children and to my children's children to believe in that kind of a future, uh, much like my slave ancestors owed it to me to believe that they would one day be free. Mm. And many of them never saw freedom, but I can assure you that almost all of them believed in it. And without that belief, there cannot be any forward momentum or psychic forward momentum. And I don't know how you can, um, I don't know how you can sustain your your sanity if you don't think that there's a better future, no matter how dark things get at times. And, and, and times have been pretty dark lately, but you have, you have to think that better times are on the horizon because future generations depend on you having those thoughts. And, and so often I think that idea that there is progress that that should be noted and that and that you believe in in a better future is is dismissed as as Pollyannish or naive and and that uh, somehow it's not it's not worth lifting up in in the discussions about the problems that we have but it, but you know the, the danger of eliminating that kind of hope i think is is so powerful and so threatening to the african american experience I, I agree. I, I think um, to believe that we are not making progress and that things will not get better is almost an act of um, group suicide. I mean, you you kind of you have you have to believe that. Imagine someone telling some enslaved person, perhaps one of the first slaves to arrive in his country, that when they started singing at night, we shall overcome. Someone coming into the room and saying, "What are you talking about? This is it for us." What? What? There's. I would not be here if my ancestors adopted that kind of an attitude. Despite all of what they went through, they must have continued to hope and believe in a better future or there simply would not have been a will for them to survive. The fact that we survived meant that there was a will to do so and a belief in a better future. And that is absolutely necessary for us now in order to have that future be a possibility. We have to believe in it if it's gonna happen. Yeah. That was my conversation with writing, literature, and publishing professor at Emerson College, Gerald Walker. 
On the next episode of Created Equal, I talk with Eddie Glaude, chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of the new book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. So whiteness is this idea that, or it contains this idea that, that some lives ought to be valued more than others. And it's precisely that belief that leads to the devaluing and disregard of other lives. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stangi and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.